Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, Julie, you, you still take MARTA every now and then, don't you? The, the, the train uh, public transportation system here in Atlanta. I do. And uh, so I'm sure you've encountered the various fossil salesmen on there that are selling bogus fossils. I mean, it's, it's like every time you turn a corner, here's somebody with uh, uh, trying to sell some sort of like Diplodocus uh, um, vertebrae oh, or yeah, a, yeah. a guanodon uh, a femur. And you know it's all fake, but you still sell people gullible enough to buy it. I know, and I'm always like, don't do that. That's just a buffalo wing from Bojangles. Yeah. <laughs> and or the remnants of it. Yeah, yeah. That, that, because if you go by just what these guys are selling, most of the fossil record was very Bojangle-ish. Yeah, yeah. In, in its uh, in its form, um, and we just know that that's not how um, how dinosaurs look. That wasn't their morphology. So no, yeah, and you know, and, and it didn't help matters that they threw on like an iguana tail. Yeah, on the buffalo wing. Yeah, and then tried to say, yeah, it's the it's the missing link. Yeah, it's a shame and but, a sham. But you know, uh, it's fake, a shim sham. It's, it's a it's a shim sham indeed. But it's a shim sham that goes far beyond uh, made up encounters on on uh, on Marta. Um, Fake fossils are uh, have been going on as long as we've had fo- real fossils. Yeah, and uh, it's it's an interesting history because on to a certain degree you have well-meaning people who just make mistakes, um, who get caught up in their passions or or in uh, you know their, their the various timeline they have to meet their ambitions. Yeah, their ambitions, and then you have uh, people who just want to make a quick buck. And you've got rogues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a spotty history. Yeah. There, there are some, as we're going to explore in this, this uh, episode, there are some real characters in, uh, in fossil history, um, who, uh, have been just completely without scruples that have been, uh, uh, pompous beyond belief and have been willing to take uh, more than a few shortcuts to uh, get their name in the history books. Yeah, and not to just throw uh, stones at glass houses here, because I I have to mention a couple of modern-day hoaxes that we have all fallen under the spell at one time or another. One is crystal skulls. Yes. Right? Yeah, the pre-Columbian Mesoamerican like crystal skulls. Not real at all. So if you bought one... You know, you should be proud and display it, but just know that it's yeah, it's not an artifact from yesteryear. And uh, and the shroud of Turin, oh, and that one is a little bit controversial. Yeah, I'm going to say you're launching right into some controversy. Well, here. I know, but it's been carbon carbon dated back to the 13th century, right? And yeah. recently, there was an Italian scientist who was able to uh, the face imprint was able to do that with another piece of cloth mm. and sort of say, look, there's the there. There's the explanation for the the facial print there. So it happens. It well, continues to happen. I think you might get letters on that one, but but we'll we'll see. <laughs> All right. But uh, but yeah, and then carbon dating. C- carbon dating, yes, is that's, that's is, a, is a key key tool. Yeah. But but then there are other like more. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these. But then you have stuff like the um, the the old circus mermaid. Um, oh yeah. Where they sewed the monkey, the dead monkey, to the the the, the back half of a fish, and like a salmon tail, yeah, right, and then orangutan jaw, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's complete. It's very creative, but it does it does crack me up because back in that day, though, how would you know, right? If yeah. wasn't that circulating? I don't know, early nineteenth century or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you don't have the internet, you know. You don't have people that are well traveled. Um, you may even not have wide access to books to yeah. reference materials. So if that were to be displayed, then you might think, wow, that creature is really out there. Yeah, and as we've discussed before, fossils, 
the fossil record is incomplete. And fossils alone do not tell us what the past was like. And in fact, I mean, we, we cannot know with any, uh, you know, strong degree of certainty what the past was like, what prehistoric days consisted of. We, we make very educated guesses mm-hmm. and, and, and theorize what it was like. And we base those theories on the fossils. We base it on, uh, on our, our use of, uh, of, of uh, basically large family trees and, and filling in the blanks. A lot of the just, we just put a lot of logic into it and a lot of deduction. It's like solving a crime, uh, where you go in, uh, and you look at a lot of evidence, uh, and you put it together and try to form a complete picture of what happened. Right. You're extrapolating to some degree. Right. So early on, though, though there were fewer tools, there was, there were, uh, especially if you're trying to build a family tree, like, Ideally, if you build a family tree, you want to just continue building something that's already been created. But to build one from scratch, from scratch, uh, there there's room for a lot of error. Right. So we, have, we, we you have to keep up, that in mind. We talked about this too in even the uh, the dinosaur sex podcast because we were trying to figure out whether what sort of um, equipment dinosaurs had um, to reproduce, and it, you still have to extrapolate there, right? We looked yeah. at alligators and basically figured out that this was probably the best logical conclusion in terms of reproduction. Yeah, you have to look at, at modern examples of the you know modern descendants of dinosaurs and sort of work backwards. And uh, and again, so so little actually makes it uh, into fossil uh, into the fossil record because right. it has to be covered with mud. It has to undergo this fossilization process that does not happen to everything. And then the more of a creature there uh, there happens to be, the more likely that creature is to wind up in the fossil record. Whereas a like top tier predator, um, of which there are fewer, very unlikely that it will show up in the fossil record at all. Right. So we have our challenges, and that that makes for more chicanery, I suppose. Yeah, out there in the, in the fossil world. But w- in speaking of the the uh, incompleteness of the fossil record, the the th- other thing is that fossils themselves are you rarely find a complete s- specimen. There are complete fossil specimens, and they're great. They're very important, but they're not that common. So yeah. if you see a guy on the train <laughs> sell, trying to sell a complete uh, fossil uh, skeleton. Right. That's a good, there's a good chance that that's a fake. Uh, so, so that's sort of a red flag there uh, when people are dealing with, uh, with fossils that, Oh, well, this one's a complete fossil uh, uh, skeleton of this, uh, this long departed uh, creature. Well, Let's take a closer look, right? Yeah, and it's very possible, too, that that person went online and looked up um, how to make a fake fossil, which I'm not kidding. There's there's an article. It's like a wiki article or something. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's pretty it's obvious that this is stuff that's going on, either right. for someone's own enjoyment or to pull a hoax or to make a quick buck. Yeah. Now, you know, you get down with modern tools, you can get down and look at them and, uh, like, look at the chemical analysis. You can right. whip out a microscope. Uh, uh, and, and also you can just look for other things like evidence of sanding. Um, you can uh, scratch uh, scratch the actual supposed fossil to see if uh, there's wax or glue in its construction. Or staining. Yeah, know. staining. Yeah. And uh, of fakes, there are basically three types of fossil fakes. There are, first, there are those that contain no original fossil material. Um, such as uh, shapes carved in rock. And then there are those that do contain original fossil material but are entirely or partially altered in order to give the appearance of a more complete specimen. Uh, so an example of this would be a sculpted uh, carved skull from a fragment of limb bone. And then there are Frankenstein specimens. And these um, uh, these that are true fossils, but they're artificially combined with from multiple individuals. Right. So you have a fossil, a little bit of fossil from creature A, a little bit from fossil from creature B, 
but you want to get your name out there and, uh, and you know, and find your own dinosaur, so you just build your own out of the available parts. parts. Yeah, DIY yeah. dinosaur fossil. Yeah. yeah. Which that was, again, this building your own dinosaur and trying to get it named was a little more common uh, previously, uh, but not it's not as rare uh, as you might think, uh, even in, t- in today's world. Yeah, and you and I talked about a little bit um, that it's it was sort of like the Wild West. In, no, it in was very regards. much the Wild to the, the extent that, there were hostile groups of Native Americans around, hostile tribes that you might have to contend with. Yeah, well, yeah. and that's the fact that this was a burgeoning field, right, back in the yeah. day, and that there were people who were competing to try they, to get their names yeah. out ahead of someone else and saying, I've discovered this creature or that creature. Yeah, and and the it was the, the field itself, they were still learning how to do it. Uh, I mean, archaeology and paleontology both were kind of evolving films, uh, evolving fields throughout the uh the Wild West period. In the well, Brontosaurus is a good example of that, right? Oh, uh, yes. Because Apathorus, is that the, the mm-hmm. real name? That was the, the first uh, fossil that was discovered. Then Brontosaurus was discovered and thought to be a different uh, subspecies, right? Right. Um, and so you know, then they realized later on that, they, that these were actually the same thing. Yeah, that was uh, uh, due to a man by the name of... Uh, Othaniel Charles Marsh, who, uh, I believe we're going to get to in just a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, yeah, let's, let's talk let's, about. Let's go, let's go and get into that. Let's yeah. talk about Marsh. All right. So you had Othaniel Charles Marsh, and then you had his counterpart, Edward Dinker Cope. All right. These guys were similar in some respects. Both born to wealthy U.S. families. A mm-hmm. um, lot of money, uh, in the family. But they were both fascinated from an early age by natural sciences. Okay. And what, what time period was this again? This was uh this was like you know like uh, late eighteen eighteen hundreds okay yeah. yeah uh so you had Cope uh Cope was a, a brilliant interpreter of fossils all right he this was, he was a hard worker um like during his life he ended up publishing uh, like more than fourteen hundred papers and monographs on paleontology mm-hmm. um and he and he risked life and limb for science I mean he was he 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 was he was out there you know risking uh, attack from uh, from uh, hostile tribes uh, and uh, and life and limb to to get these uh, these fossils, right? But he was also really arrogant. Uh, he was really hot tempered, and this would become a defining uh, part of who he was. Marsh, on the other hand, Marsh uh, spent his entire career at Yale University, where he's professor of paleontology and curator of the Peabody Museum of Natural History. Now he wasn't as uh, as bright as Cope, right? Perhaps mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, or at least that's that's. What some of the historians argue that he, he he maybe didn't have the natural intellectual gift uh, for it, but he but what he lacked he made up for in uh, is just uh, just being a ruthless and masterful organizer, and he you know he had a real knack for the politics of the system too. But but again, he was this this guy was not just like oh I'm going to make some money off of fossils. No, he was he was legitimately uh, obsessed and interested in and just in awe of. Uh, of of these uh, these wondrous relics of the past people were finding in the in the earth. And tell me if I'm wrong on this if I've, if I've got it backwards. But is it Marsh who looked at Cope's uh, one of Cope's uh, assemblage of fossil parts yes. and pointed out that the head was on the opposite side of the vertebrae? Yeah. Now they these two start- and I mean this was like and these are fighting words right like yeah. these are almost like dueling words. This back was in the day. this was the incident that really kicked things off. Yeah, um, because uh, they they started off they kind of knew each other a little bit. You know, paleontology, especially in those days, was kind of a small tent. Right. So <laughs> so these two they, they knew who they each other were. But then Cope went on this expedition to Kansas, and he uh, lined up the fossils of 
an elasmosaurus and published a paper about it. All right. But Cope had placed the head on the wrong end, which sounds, you know, laughable. But it, right. again, this is a, a, an earlier age of paleontology, uh, piecing these things together. But uh, so he placed the head on the wrong end um, uh, on the tail of the uh, of, of the spine. Right. And uh, when he found out, uh, Cope uh, immediately be- began, you know, he realized he made the mistake and he starts buying back um, all the papers <laughs> that uh, published his uh, right. his incorrect illustration. You know, because he was a prideful dude and he made this error. And so, and, and again, how many how many copies of this could have possibly been out there, you know? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's for not like, self-publishing, right? Yeah. Or even like big publishing houses. We're talking maybe like, I don't know, 50 or something. Yeah, it's not like the internet where once you push publish, it's out there somewhere. Yeah, uh, no, he's he, probably he, like, all my family members, give me back those copies right now. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, he he did this. But then Marsh, uh, like, really started pointing the figure and finger and he just seemed really... To delight in this as well, um, you know, saying that uh, uh, saying that Cope uh, made a, uh, made 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 this error, and that he had uh, and that you know that he had always oh, tried to cover up for his own mistakes, yeah. and so it started he getting really dirty. Suck it to him. Yeah, and so what would follow would be two decades of feuding between these two, um, and, and during this time. And it, it, it's, it's interesting because this feud, because on, on one hand, this feud ended up fueling a lot of important discoveries in paleontology. Because, well, right, because they were both racing to the finish line, right? Right. It became a race to do, who could dis- who could discover the most uh, uh, fossils, who could discover, who could have name the the most specimens, mm-hmm. and uh, and wind up as the the bigger name in the history books. Yeah. So, so yeah. On one hand, it's fueling a lot of dis- a lot of discovery, but on the other hand, uh, Cope winds up rushing. And making more careless errors, yeah. such as the Brontosaurus, um, uh, Apatosaurus incident that we, uh, we just, uh, mentioned. Yeah. Where he basically, in 1877, he, um, he, he, he found, uh, the, the Apatosaurus and publishes, uh, um, you know, information on that. And then, um, he hastily, uh, named and described another one, the Brontosaurus, uh, based on incomplete materials. Mm-hmm. We'd later find out that this was the same species. Yeah. That's why then we revert from, again, from Brontosaurus to Apatosaurus because when he first discovered it, it was named Apatosaurus. Right. And this is all just to best his frenemy. Yeah. You know? Which is, oh, yeah. I mean, I do think it's the classic frenemy example. Yeah. I get, uh, frenemy is such a weird term. I, I mean, these guys really, there's so much, well, yes, but, so you know, much vinegar in this uh, relationship, there's a lot of vinegar. It's very acidic. But, you know, surely, like you said, it's a small group and yeah. I'm sure that they were civil to each other, but their hatred for each other definitely fueled. Well, their uh, discoveries. they were civil for a while, but that, like I said, these 20 years of feuding were That's pretty true. rough. Yeah, it gets rough. And and like I say, C- Cope, he made some mistakes. He'd get in a hurry and make some careless errors. Marsh was more careful in his work. But he was all, he was more uh, ready to to resort to resort to resort to bribery or bullying um, in in the pursuit of these specimens, uh, and also they so, were also weren't they also driving up the price because uh, before that they were actually getting these the fossils for free right mm-hmm. um, mostly, but then when they started competing against each other they were buying them off of people and other people couldn't compete because they couldn't spend that much money. Yeah. On, on getting those fossils. And, and they just continue to fight in the, uh, like first in the, in the, um, in the scientific papers, but even in the news, it carries over into newspapers because every time one of them, you know, makes some claim or publishes a paper, the other one's there to just, you know, tear it apart and make all sorts of nasty, potentially libelous comments about, about what they're doing, their work, you know, right. just tearing them to ribbons. 
Also, each scientist had hired a crew, a field crew, to help them unearth and ship back these fossils, right? And the rival crews were known to spy on each other, to dynamite their own and each other's uh, secret locations to keep their opponents from digging there. Right. And occasionally they'd steal other, they'd steal each other's fossils. Um, and, uh, and, and, and all the time, you know, they're, they're working in harsh conditions. They're, the, the, uh, the Native American tribes are, are out there and aren't too happy about it. Uh, I mean, with good reason. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it- Marsh particular was known to, uh, uh, I read a, an account of where he uh, he was really interested by the uh, the way that uh, one particular tribe would put their dead up on these uh, these stilted platforms. Yeah, and he was like, "Let's go take a look at those skulls." So they just, you know, he, him and his crew just go and start digging around in the bones. And, and I, I uh, liked it when we were discussing it bef- uh, earlier. You were talking about how, like, if they had made a movie out of it, it would probably be more in the spirit of "There Will Be Blood." Yeah. Know? Yeah, because because it, it's that level of just like, oh, these guys are so unhappy and nasty to each other. It's they're just miserable people and so calculating. Yeah, yeah, um, and it reminds me too of the Beringer hoax because oh, yeah. it's in the same sort of spirit. It's perhaps not as um, as involved as this. In fact, do you, were you going to talk about like the the last sort of kick in the teeth? Oh, you mean the uh, with the skull? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, yeah. So again, twenty years of feuding. By the end of it, both of them are financially ruined um, be, because they end up financing their own expeditions because it's, you know, got to yeah. get ahead, got to get ahead. And like, oh, I got to put my own money into it. Fine. Uh, eventually, Cope dies. He dies in 1897 after he's just, you know, he's had to, like, sell part of his fossil collection just yeah. to make ends meet. But he has his skull donated to science so that his brain can be measured. Uh, and he's, his big hope here is that his brain will be found larger than that of Marsh. Um <laughs> But Marsh Marsh didn't actually pony up to this challenge, uh, wow, which see, is, of course, silly anyway, because the size of a brain doesn't really have anything to do with with how smart the individual right, is. Right, right, they, which they didn't know them. But um, but the arrogance, the sheer yeah. arrogance. And it's like that's your defining thing. It's like like clearly these guys were like the hatred that they have for each other becomes more important to, than the science, even though right. they, they, they both contributed a lot to science and were both scientifically great men, even if they were both kind of jerks. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. And that does seem to be a theme, like the, the jerk thing. Like if you're a jerk, you will suffer. Yeah. In in this particular scenario, and that's when that's when we'll turn and look at uh, Beringer hoax or Beringer hoax. And this is Dr. Johann Bartholomew Adam Beringer. Uh, or Berenger, I'm just going to say it five different ways. Um, he was professor and the dean of medicine at the University of Horsburg in Germany in the 1700s, and he collected fossils. And um, he wasn't an expert, but he was certainly very interested in the in the burgeoning field. Um, but one day he was completely thunderstruck when students of his delivered hundreds of carvings. Uh, and over time, I think it was it numbered something like in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and these carvings, they they figured uh, they had all sorts of animals. Um, there was one that had frogs mating, which should have raised a red flag. Um, birds flying. Some of the rocks had birds flying. Birds. Flying. How would a flying bird become fossilized? You know. I mean, I, yeah, I know. I mean, in the act of flight, right? Yeah. 
Um, and then some of the rocks had Syrian, Hebrew, and Babylonian inscriptions. And Berenger uh, came to believe that these stones were created by God as a test of human faith. And he really struggled or, or with this. Or possibly uh, just for God's pleasure. That was another one of his oh, arguments. For, that's right. For it's kind God's of like God pleasure. was either trying to teach us or maybe he was just doing it for fun. He's God. He can do what he wants. He can write words all over fossilized yeah, and, birds. And, and he didn't come to this conclusion right away. I mean, he, he actually started out with a more logical conclusions, like perhaps this could have been like a, an ancient society that um, carved these things. Mm-hmm. And then he started to think that they were actual, you know, po- uh, possible fossil records. And then, uh, he, you know, as they became more and more elaborate, especially with the Hebrew uh, writings on them, that's when he began to link it with the existence of, of um, some sort of like godlike material uh, that was brought down right when when, in, when really it was just he was kind of a, a pompous dude and uh he some, some of his uh, his co-workers decided to mess with him yeah two of his colleagues they they spent all of this time oh this was another reason why he thought that it couldn't have been anything but but god because he thought how who would go to the trouble <laughs> of carving and polishing 2000 stones yeah. well two colleagues that hate your guts that's it yeah. um they actually planted them for, for Behringer students to find and then delivered to Behringer. Um, because they said, because Behringer was so arrogant and, de- and despised them all. And this was J, uh, J Ignates Roderick and yeah. George von Eckhart. So Eckhart and Roderick. Yep. Sounds like a musical group, but yeah. yes. Um, so they actually did try to put a, a quasi stop to it because they found out that Beringer was about to publish a book about these stones, which would have made him the laughing stock. Yeah, because he, yeah, he had written a whole book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was so excited about this, right? But uh, so they started to plan. Like, Whoa, we, dude, we've gone too far. Yeah, we've gone too we far. We really need, need to kill this. This guy is about to ruin his career. Uh, so they start saying, okay, well, we don't actually think those are real fossils and spreading rumors. And he thought they were just trying to discredit him at that point. He's like, he's like, thought they were jealous. Yeah. <laughs> and, but this is so funny because this is where like the whole confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance comes into play mm-hmm. where, you know, you believe something so readily that you can't help, but now take all this mounting evidence and continue to believe this, that what might be a lie, you know? Yeah. Um, but so anyway, that, that he does actually publish this book and, um, and, and he does not come to the realization that these are fakes until the last stone arrives and it actually has his name carved on it. And then he finally says, okay, I've, I've been had, but by this time it's too late and he actually takes legal action against those colleagues. And, uh, it's not pretty. And I mean, they actually kind of look like jerks for doing it. Yeah. And he actually, he continues to have uh, an academic career, something for like 14 years afterward. But. Man, that's a serious commitment to a hoax. They, but in court, they they didn't own up to it. They they said uh, that they had uh, devised the the scheme quote because Beringer was so arrogant and despised them all. Yeah, I mean, so. there you go. I mean, that, it's so funny what uh, what makes us do the things that we do as humans yeah. and the the energy that we expend on it. Uh, so there you go. I mean, that those are some really good examples of that time period and that sort of ambition, that raw ambition that's fueling this. Um, but then I think we should probably talk a little bit about one of the most famous hoaxes, which is the Piltdown Man. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, this is uh, in China, correct? Uh, actually, Piltdown was in Britain. 
Oh, wait, I have it confused with something else. I think, I think you're thinking about the Piltdown chicken. Oh, yes. I have the Piltdown chicken in mind, which is, which is Chinese. We'll get to that in a second. Oh, okay. So, uh, Piltdown Man, 1911, there's a laborer who found a piece of skull that he passed on to a man named Charles Dawson, who was an amateur archaeologist. And, uh, along with a guy named Sir Anthony Smith Woodward, who was a more esteemed, um, scientist, Dawson presented the reconstructed skull to the public as the missing link. Because at this time, obviously, uh, Darwin's, um, it, all of his information has been out there. There's been like this big brouhaha to find the missing link, right? Um, like humankind's earliest ancestor. And the discovery actually eclipsed the discovery of the Neanderthal man in Germany. Wow. Which is, this is important, right? Yeah, yeah. Because the Neanderthal man was, is, is a very important fossil he, that yeah. actually is, uh, you know, is real. It wasn't made up. Yeah. And to talk about the conditions a little bit too, it's 1911. There's yeah. a, a rival, uh, going on between Germany and Britain. Mm-hmm. At this point, Britain is the only country, I believe that France, Spain, and Germany all have, um, some fossil record of earlier man and, uh, Britain doesn't. Nothing. So in terms of national pride, I think that they were definitely in a position to believe this or want to believe this and put this forward. Um, but then more remains show up, including another partial skull and what actually looked like a cricket bat. Okay, so obviously it's getting someone is getting a, a little bit more brazen, right? And and trying to to mess them up. But again, they try to say, "Oh no, this cricket bat is is probably some bone or femur or something." They're they're trying to explain it away. Um, but then in 1955, scientific tests reveal that the skull was an actually an amalgamation of a human skull and orangutan's jaw with a canine tooth. Um, the skull had been stained, the canine tooth had been painted and filed. So it becomes a mystery of who done it really. Mm-hmm. Because Dawson by this time, he he's long passed. I mean he passed actually in nineteen fifteen. So whatever secrets he has about it, he's taken to the grave with him. Um and then there's this theory that's it just gets even weirder. There's this theory that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle who is oh, wow. actually perpetrating this hoax <laughs> against the scientific community. Uh, one, because he was made fun of mercilessly when he was talking about spiritualism, right? The right. scientific community was like, seriously, like you, you, you're believing in, uh, in something that is not happening here. Plasma is not hitting you in the face and the table is not actually rising. Right. And so he was pretty mortified by that and he was mad. And he lived, I think, like 30 miles from the excavation site and he hmm. would have had the financial means to pull off this hoax. So I don't, you know, the, the jury is still out. And he had he had a little uh, a little history with contemplating how people would pull one over on the authorities, uh, right? So, mystery writer, yeah. right? So um, yeah, it's very possible that he was just doing this for his own fun and amusement. Yeah. Uh, but then I mean, a lot of people point to to Dawson perhaps as doing this, and even uh, Woodward, who is the the scientist that helped uh, Dawson forward uh, the Piltdown Man. So again, it's not really clear. Who actually did it, uh, why they did it, but again, you've got those conditions. You've got Britain not having any sort of, uh, example of early man. You've got this rivalry between them. You, you know, you're gearing up toward World War One, and, you know, it's obvious that something like this could happen. It's, it's ironic that, uh, we just recorded an episode on the placebo effect and about our yeah. willingness to believe in something that, uh, that isn't so. And, uh, and we're, we encounter a similar thing with, uh, with, with these, uh, fossil, uh, remains, supposed fossil remains. Yeah. I mean, you cannot help it. I mean, if the person is 
if, if they're that excited about it, especially if it's a, a matter of national pride, then they probably are going to overlook a lot of those red flags. And, and, and Berenger is a, another good example, right? I mm-hmm. mean, even in his writings in his book about the stones, he would talk about the degree that the stones were polished and wonder about them and never even think to himself, well, perhaps, you know, <laughs> man did that, you know, um, you know, it's not such a great mystery. Yeah. Well, then there's, uh, like I mentioned, there's also the pit down chicken, which has no connection, uh, to the to, funky chicken. Well, or to, uh, to the, the example we just discussed. Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, pit down chicken. Uh, this involves the National Geographic Society. Uh, go back to, uh, all the way back to October 15th, 1999. So this, this one's fairly recent. Um, they announced a major discovery. They said they'd found a, uh, 125 million year old fossil in northeastern China. And that it appeared to be the the uh, missing link between dinosaurs and birds. Um, for over 20 years, uh, you know, paleontologists have debated whether birds were descended from dinosaurs. And you get right. that that whole debate of of um, did birds come from dinosaurs, and then this other idea that dinosaurs became birds, right. um, yeah, you know, et cetera. So here we go, conclusive proof. Um, a bird with a tail. Yeah, a bird with a tail. Uh, but then you had this, uh, this scientist, Chinese scientist by the name of Zhu Zing. And what did he find? Oh, he found the Archaeoraptor's tail. Or he, well, he was the first person to, to identify the Archaeoraptor, right? Right. The pit down chicken. Yeah. And then, but then he find, found the exact same tail, only attached to a different body. Ah. Yeah. And he was like, something is amiss here. Yeah. Something has been, uh, put together. And it's, uh, and, and they're trying to pull one over on us. Someone had, uh, had taken one of the slabs bearing the tail fossil and attached it to a fossil of a bird, thereby producing this marvelous hybrid of a dinosaur and a bird creature. The Franken bird dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't, uh, National Geographic then published an admission of its mistake in 2000, right? Like a year later or yeah, so. Yeah. They, they, they owned up to it. They didn't, uh, you know. No, yeah, and they cited, they said one of the reasons for the dupe was that they were rushing for publication before scholarly journals had a chance to peer review it. Yeah, so here you end up with the, uh, uh, dragging, uh, science journalism into the mix. Yeah. Which is, uh, which it, which becomes the, the, the push, like you said, to, uh, to, to get something out, to, to, to go ahead and name it, to, to, to get the, uh, get the TV show started. Right. Get the, uh, get the news, uh, uh, releases out there. I mean, seriously, it seems like any big, uh, uh, paleontological or, uh, or, um, or archaeological discovery nowadays comes with a TV deal already in place. It's crazy. Well, and it's not even just, uh, paleontology. I mean, think about the arsenic, um, the life forms, the arsenic yeah. that, it, that recently was talked about, um, you know, other than carbon based life forms that, that there's this possibility of arsenic based life forms. Uh-huh. And of course, that information was released and then people said, whoa, whoa, this, this, <laughs> let's look at this a little bit closer. This is really overstating this, this one part of this study. Um, so it's not just, it's everywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wants to scoop and how you mean we're, we're information junkies. We can't help yeah. it. Yeah. And, and we're part of the information. Um, no, I mean, we're, I mean, we're basically science writers, science journalists. So we're kind of a part of the system, but we are it is what it is. It's true. That's true. We try yeah. to, we try to inform and delight within reason. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, you know, you had talked about uh the the Fiji mermaid. Yes. Earlier. Yeah, yeah, the uh the the ape and the uh, fish sewn together to look like it, a mermaid. Yeah. A very grotesque and uh, non-sexy mermaid. Totally yeah. non-sexy, but I mean, isn't it funny that we think about that and we we scoff at it and then you've got the pit down chicken, right? Yeah. Which is really a more elaborate this, form yeah, of that. Yeah, the same thing, really, just, you know, 
take two things, put it together, and you got something new. Um, another uh, example that I really like that we won't go into a lot of detail about was the Hy- the Hydrox. Yeah. And this was 1845, and it was, quote, unquote, found by, uh, quote, unquote, Dr. Albert Koch. Um, quote, unquote, Koch. Yeah. <laughs> and he, um, he, he miraculously found this gigantic fossil of a reptile, 114 feet long. You know, it looks like uh, the Loch, Loch Ness Monster, some sort of big sea serpent. But what he actually did is he just pieced together the bones of five fossil whales and then chose the specimen, uh, you know, throughout the U.S. and England. Um, the hoax was later exposed, but for a brief period of time, he gets to, uh, to, you know, to, to, to wallow in the, uh, the acclaim of having found this uh, miraculous fossil specimen. Yeah. And this is certainly the circus side of it, right? Yeah. And, uh, another good example, which is fairly recent, I believe it's 2003, eh, recent-ish, uh, Loch Ness Monster, which is obviously that is a huge tourist destination because right. of old Nessie purported to be swimming around in the lake. Um, but in 2003, a man found the remains of a creature when he tripped and fell into the Loch Ness. Um, what were the chances that I just, know. just tripped and fell in and oops, there it is. Oops. Ooh. Uh, what is that I just tripped on? This, of course, was thought to be the fossil of Nessie uh, or one of Nessie's ancestors. I don't know. Uh, and it, it was actually um, that people thought it was proof that the monster had existed or did exist. Um, but it turns out that the fossils belonged to a pliosaur, which is a dinosaur that measured 35 feet long and had a long serpentine neck. Uh, and what the fossil was doing in freshwater lake isn't really known because it's <laughs> obvious that this fossil had um, been exposed to the elements of the sea for very long. But like somebody who really wanted to believe went out, bought some fossils, rode yes. out, and like a, I picture him in a rowboat and just dumped them. Absolutely, they did, and they just waited for someone to, I guess, fall into the Loch Ness and discover them. Um, but you know, you have to wonder, like, you know, it's a Scottish tourist industry are they like up to shenanigans there <laughs> what's going on or is this just some well-meaning local person um and i would be really be interested if there's anybody from scotland that's listening to this podcast um, to what degree the loch ness monster um is felt like people to exist or perhaps have existed because well, it's very intriguing i'm yeah. intrigued by the loch ness monster do i think well, it exists no <laughs> What's well, kind of like in our own state of Georgia when uh, when those two guys claim to have found the Bigfoot in the in the cooler? Well, they didn't claim to find the Bigfoot in a cool, a dead Bigfoot in a cooler, but right. they had the picture of the dead Bigfoot in the cooler, which was by the time the picture came out was clearly a, a like a gorilla costume in a cooler in a styrofoam cooler. But for a brief period of time there, like less than an afternoon, it seemed it seemed possible that. Oh my goodness. Maybe the, the age of the Bigfoot mystery is over and we're entering a new age in which we, we know what's up. Yeah. We finally found yeah. the proof. And it was the equal parts, um, exhilarating and, and, and disappointing because you didn't want the mystery to go away. Right. But you also wanted to find out. And luckily we didn't have to, to do either. But you know, there's always the chupacabra. Right. Yes. If if you can't have your Bigfoot, you've got the chupacabra. The so. Mexican goat sucker. Yes. Yep. Uh, you're right. So there are plenty of other, uh, Zurific characters out there. Yeah, unicorns. Yeah, cryptids. Yeah, cryptozoology. That's what I was struggling for. Well, in in cryptozoology, uh, when you get into a lot of these, uh, a lot of some of the uh, the the mythic creatures, uh, you're actually getting into a situation where uh, where people were interpreting fossils at some point. Like in the you know in the ancient past, you had people who were much more uh, inclined to say you know cut up all the animals around them. Uh, to eat or to process into clothing. Yeah. So they find some sort of weird 
fossil remains, these, you know, it looks like a skeleton of something. And they're, they're saying, hmm, that doesn't look like the insides of the cat, uh, that I had for breakfast that I cut up or the dog that I cut up and had last night. Right. Or the cow that I just finished cutting up uh, this afternoon. So what is that? And then they have to sort of do this kind of without, you know, the aid of science or actual paleontology. They have to do some sort of primitive building in their mind and imagining what it might have looked like and then imagining that it either did or does exist. Yeah, and again, there's that thing we talked about this in the placebo effect. This, this, the mind having to tell itself a piece of fiction to make sense of the world, right? Yeah. Um, so we can't help it. We have to make up these these cool creatures. Um, it actually reminded me too. There's a uh, this American Life episode, and they were talking about uh, beliefs that we've held that aren't true or proved not to be true. And there, uh-huh. uh, there was one woman they interviewed, and she's perfectly <sighs> smart. You know the one I'm talking uh, about. Yeah. Very smart woman, uh, educated, so on and so forth, sane. Um, but she was sitting around one day talking to some coworkers and people were making a joke, I think, about unicorns. And she said very innocently, like, yeah, I wonder, um, what was that something like? Do you think they'll ever be able to bring them back or? Yeah, yeah, it was some comment that was just kind of like, that was along the lines of, uh, oh, I'd love to see one someday, or, or yeah, just like, or what, she, don't you think they were really cool, or they went extinct, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, through no fault of, of her own, she existed in a, in a world in her head where the unicorn existed. Like, she had Nobody never, had ever told yeah. her explicitly, like, I Like, the I other ex- example that they brought up in that was somebody who thought that the, uh, like, children, like the children, or like the deer crossing sign, the deer Xing sign, yeah. was that you, pro- that you pronounce the crossing, the Xing, you pronounce it Zing. <laughs> so she just grew up always mispronouncing it. So this right. is like a, a, a different version of the lifelong mispronunciation issue. But I always think about that moment she had, how horrified she must have been. Because she said, you know, yeah, it went extinct. And then everybody laughed. Yeah. And then when they saw her face and that she was completely earnest, there oh. was like the crickets. Yeah. And the, the sad looks toward her way. And I, that's when her dreams were dashed. Yeah, they had just killed unicorns for one individual. So. I know, I know. So, yeah, I don't know. You, you, you can see how these uh, these beliefs, misheld, uh, miscon- misconceptions kind of bloom in our mind. Yeah. We are not immune. So there you have it. We have uh, we have a couple of listener mails I want to get to here. We have one from Trevor. And Trevor writes in and says, "I listened to the podcast and enjoyed it thoroughly." Oh, he's talking about the dog podcast. Uh, so well played. You now have a loyal subscriber. I have always pondered my dog's love for me. Some background info: colon I have always had canines and currently have a beagle named uh, Reginald Reggie for short. I got Reg. Then he short shortens it even more. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got Reg when he was a year old from a shelter, which was when I truly began to contemplate the man-dog relationship. I eventually derived that he loves me only out of necessity. I will explain. When I first got him, he did everything in his power to escape. To no avail. Thanks, Satan. Okay. Um, he then became more comfortable and loyal when he was content in his surroundings. Though uh, Through his, this transformation, I concluded that I had, in effect, Stockholmed my pup. The Stockholm Syndrome, right. of course, where um, a, a kidnapped individual falls in love with a kidnapper. Right. Um, out of necessity for his happiness, he resigned to the fact that he was stuck with me. Just a, like a captive human, eventually his will was broken and became a good dog. I wonder if this uh, correlation has been thought of previously. It's an interesting notion and can be translated to all domesticated animals. Any thoughts? 
I think it's an excellent point, and it's something that actually floated through my head um, when we were doing the research. But you know, it's, it, you know how it is. Whenever we sit down and do a podcast, you know, whatever comes out of our mouth and our brains comes out. So, I think it's it, a really great point to bring up. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, the, the dog is wholly dependent on you. Why wouldn't they all of a sudden be saying, you know, you're the person who gives me my food? I will cozy up to you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So interesting thoughts there, Trevor. I, I love I love it when people. Uh, um, you know, it's kind of like answering a question with a question kind of thing, but, but, but I really enjoy when people write in, uh, uh, like harder questions based on what we've oh, talked yeah. about and extrapolate more involved uh, ponderings. Uh, and, and we do. We get so many of those. Notes. Uh, mm-hmm. It's pretty awesome to see that mixed up, you know, tickling our brains a little bit. Uh, we also heard from a listener by the name of Brooke, who is a PhD candidate in evolutionary biology. Oh, this is a good brain tick. Yeah. Uh, hi, Robert and Julie. After listening to your recent podcast on the evolution of our five fingers, I am sorry to report a disappointing fact for you. Stylus fingers are an unlikely future human appendage! Exclamation point. It's a creative idea that might even be useful to future humans, but suffers from a common misunderstanding of evolutionary adaptations. Living creatures don't just evolve new features because they are useful, or our ancestors would have evolved matches uh, for fingernails. All new features have to arrive through the random process of mutation. And even assuming we got mutant humans with stylus fingers, the stylus fingers would have to increase their chances of surviving and having babies in order to spread through all of humanity. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd want a mate with stylus fingers. Add <laughs> add to all of that evolutionary Ouch. constraints, as you reported, we've had five fingers for a long time, evolutionary speaking, and the likelihood of human extinction before the mutation occurs, and stylus fingers seem very improbable. Unless, of course, we figure out how to genetically engineer ourselves, which we could maybe do? Question mark? So, um, I don't know. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the gene plasticity of dogs, right? The yeah. ability for us to, to breed them and breed the traits that we want. But I don't know that we would be able to do that in humans. Yeah. Um, that remains to be seen, I suppose. But uh, we, we thank Brooke for writing that because she does make an impo- important point that yeah. uh, evolution is about mutations occurring and those mutations being advantageous for the, um, for, for the uh, continuation of the species. Like, if for some reason humans... Uh, Evolved a horn on their head like awesome. a rhinoceros, and I'm and I'm really and this is not going to happen, but this is just an, an outrageous example to illustrate. Suddenly, some people have horns, some don't, and the ones with horns are able to stab the potential mates that don't have horns. Right. Therefore, only the the, the horned males gets to get to a mate with the females. There's a joke yeah. there. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> run wild with it. But. So, hey, if you have uh, anything to share with us, uh, particularly uh, if you have anything uh, to, uh, to add about uh, the Bone Wars or archaeology or curious incidents from paleontology, I feel like I left one or two really interesting stories out. So uh, I may have to uh, hunt those down myself. But anyway, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as uh, Blow the Mind. We're Blow the Mind on both of those, so just do a, a quick search for that. And we really do love to hear from you, so please drop us a note at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. <laughs>